we would put, we'll have to look because I don't remember there and there's no water. So if you put them too close to what you're trying to get, it's too close. You're going to have to zoom out. Right, so we might want to stick the one in the front and the gate has looking down and it might catch.
Good morning. Let's take our Good Friday services at Calvary. Oh, okay. And this says take an offering later. It's going to be on Easter okay. Sunday. I'll, I'll read from that one. Okay. All right. I'm getting my ducks in a row here. Anyway, did I say good morning? Good morning. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Matthew 26, 4. Choir rehearsal tonight at 5. Uh, our study in John's Gospel at 6. Men's Bible study Tuesday, 10 a.m. at McLeod's. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. You'll see the note there that uh, Andrea is our contact person for the prayer chain. Corrections for the directory on the clipboard. Somebody help me. Where's the clipboard? Is it? It's on the table. Okay. The, the clipboard is on the table. Uh, LPRC banquet coming, uh, and our church is putting together a gluten-free basket for the auction. You'll see it there. Um, last day is today. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Um, pardon our dust. You see that? Easter sunrise service, uh, April 1st. That's 830. Uh, menu is posted on the helps board. Sign up today. Uh, Jared will be speaking at the sunrise service, then communion service after that. Breakfast at 930, and then uh, worship hour to follow. Uh, I think the time is 8.15. Yeah, nine, uh, eight, it says 8.30, but um, it's 8.15. 8 okay, so, so make, that, yeah. make that correction for sure. Um, April 1st, 8.15. Um, vote on the insulation for the foyer. That's Wednesday. And um, at the bottom of that where it says we'll take an offering later, We'll take an offering Easter Sunday for that. So the offering for the insulation will be on Easter Sunday. Be prepared for that. Uh, number 12 then would be there is a, a Good Friday service at Calvary Bible at 1 p.m. So if you want to attend a Good Friday service. Also, uh, another uh, announcement that's not in your uh, bulletin. Uh, if anyone is interested in participating in the escape room fun night, uh, at the end of April, uh, text Jess and she need, because she needs to order tickets by the 25th of this month. Uh, payment is due two weeks later. Also, a sign-up sheet in the foyer. I don't know if the sign-up sheet is here yet, but it will be today. So um, that, that's the um, escape room uh, fun night, and there will be a flyer and some more information on that. Lastly, if you didn't hear already, yes, there's a grandbaby, and uh, her name is Elliot, and she's beautiful, and she's well, and of course, that's where Laura's at, so if you want, to, if you want pictures, see me. <laughs> All right. Um, our scripture for meditation 
uh, is Luke 23, read verses 44 through 56. Let's stand together and open our service with prayer. Dale, would you like to open for us today? Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you brought us out. And uh, we ask that your spirit would join with us as we uh, worship our Savior. We, um, we do ask for our healing. Still sitting and not able to, to come here for whatever reason. We ask that our brothers and sisters will be able to join us soon in your will. Be with our pastor as he brings the word and strengthens him. Thank you for this day, Lord. All of you. Amen. Good morning. Please take your uh, red hymnal and turn to 251.
chosen that for us this morning? Well, uh, I tried to think of the words and figure out what the title of the song was here the other day. And uh, after scratching my, my head for an hour or two, I finally figured out that I could look it up on uh, the internet. And so I went to Google and it was Rock of Ages. And I thought, well, what a dummy. I didn't know that. Time that we sang it. <laughs> can we do 204 in the brown? Yeah, we can do 204 in the brown. Yes, we can. Okay. <laughs> 204 if we would like accompaniment this morning. 204. Yeah, that's a better key, isn't it?
Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54. It's page 1548 in the Pew Bible. And when you have that, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. May God add his blessing to his spoken word this morning. Uh, will you take, please, your Trinity hymnal again? 254 this time. the same, the meter's different, just a minute. Let's try 208 in the brown, just a minute, let's see if that one's the, the right one. The notes are the same, the meter isn't. Nope, that isn't either. We got one more, one more shot at this. Okay, well, let's go ahead and try this one more time then. Okay, let's go ahead and stay in the same book then, 254 in the red. Second verse. We'll try to be a little closer together. Here we are.
Our scripture text this morning is found in Matthew 27. Matthew 27. As we have been studying the sayings of Christ from the cross, we looked at the word of provision last week. While all the apostles fled from the scene, the women were at the cross. Mary, his mother, was there. She was a woman destined for sorrow with regard to her son, as Simeon had predicted. Mary suffered in silence, the scripture says, within her soul, pondering the atrocities done to Jesus in her heart knowing all along that he was innocent and undefiled. We noted, secondly, that Jesus' honor of his parent, honor has to do with respect. It has to do with caring for their needs. So what do we find? We find Jesus committed the care of his mother into John's capable hands, not into the hands of his unbelieving brothers. Very strange. Blood brothers, half-brothers at least, they don't get the care of mom. John the Apostle is assigned that role. But we do know that in later life, John, uh, John's siblings, half-brothers, came to know him, came to know Jesus as Savior. Uh, but at this point in their lives, no. We also observe that a cowardly and runaway disciple can come back to Christ's good graces, and when he does, he's treated with special honor. Remember, they all ran away. All the disciples ran away. 
when Jesus was arrested, including John. But we find John back at the foot of the cross, the only disciple who did come there and stand there. He got control of his cowardice. He repented of that and came back. And what we learn is that whatever you and I are, as failing Christians, we are loved more by God than any blood ties could guarantee. And then finally we learn that Mary's fitting example is of a woman trusting in the crucified one. Because in her song, did you know she has a song? It's a song in scripture. She exalts her unborn son, when he was just a child, as her savior. Luke 1, verse 46. She had a right view of herself. She had a right view of Jesus' identity and power. She wasn't pulling mother... um, power over Jesus. She understood where her role was. Well, today we come to the words of anguish which Jesus uttered shortly before he yielded up his spirit and died. The words are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we come, let's ask the Lord to teach us. Our Father, we thank you for the honesty of the scriptures. Here we see Jesus in his anguish, crying out to God the Father in his hour of great distress. It was a time of great distress. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pleasant for the observers, and it wasn't pleasant for Jesus who was enduring these things. But he endured the unpleasantness, the pain, the suffering in order that he might be our faithful high priest and savior. Bless the truth of your word today. Thank you for those that have made the effort to come out. Be with those that are ill. In Christ's name, amen. We're looking today at the the words of anguish from the cross wherein Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm trying to take the sayings of Christ in order, but you will notice that one does not find all the words of Christ from the cross in each of the gospel accounts. There are variant readings. In other words, you'll find some of the words in one of the gospels, some of them in another gospel, and so forth. For example, in our text, Matthew talks about someone from among the crowd running to fetch some wine vinegar on a sponge and offering it to Jesus on a stick, verse 48. But Matthew tells us nothing of the words of Jesus, I am thirsty, which prompted this action. Or again, in verse 50, Matthew explains how Jesus gave up his spirit to death But he says nothing about Jesus' statement, it is finished, which occurred before his statement. To Matthew's credit, he speaks of the curtain in the temple being torn from top to bottom at the death of Christ. He talks of the resurrections which took place of holy people, verse 52, some of which is not recorded in the other Gospel accounts. 
Now, we might ask the question, what is the reason for these discrepancies? Well, one is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them, which of course are the authors of the other Gospels, none of them were present at the cross. Not one of them. Their information came from other accounts. We need to see that Though the harmony of the gospel accounts is a wonderful blessing of the scriptures, so is the diversity. I'm glad John was there as an eyewitness to what occurred. And if John doesn't write about the torn curtain, it's certain because the other gospel writers already covered that in their histories. So he then passes over that information and he gives instead information which he alone was privy to because he was there. He was there. So instead of viewing the discrepancies as proof that the Bible is not true, we view them as non-contradictory, as giving additional information which fits in well with the overall scenario. It's called the analogy of scripture. You compare one scripture with another and by doing that you begin to get the full picture. So don't listen to the critics. You know, they say, well, they didn't mention the Torah curtain. Well, no one else mentioned that or so on and so forth. They have to read the scriptures. Instead of picking on the scriptures and saying, see, 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 wrong, 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 you have to compare the scriptures together to get the whole picture. So when Matthew only talks of a person running to fetch vinegar on a sponge, it's perfectly reasonable that before that occurred, Jesus' words, I am thirsty, were said, and we find those recorded in John 19, verse 28. That's why he ran and got some kind of liquid. In fact, John's account makes for a more reasonable explanation of why a man should just suddenly run off to fetch a sponge full of wine vinegar, verse 48 of our text. So we find John's account is filling in the gaps that are left by Matthew. So the diversity in the gospel accounts actually help us to obtain a fuller picture of what happened. What I'm saying here is that the Bible will explain itself if you give it a chance. If you just don't pick on one text, but if you'll see the beauty of the scriptures being written together. Don't always assume that a seeming discrepancy is a real discrepancy. Believing in the God of truth, we need to search for the truth. And when we find something which doesn't look like it goes together... We need to acknowledge that the problem is with our own limited knowledge, not with God. Let me put it this way. It isn't understand our understanding of the Bible which makes it the truth. Get what I'm saying now. It isn't our understanding of the Bible which makes it, makes it true. The Bible is truth whether or not we understand it. Because our understanding is always limited. 
Now consider some of the surrounding events which occur just prior to Jesus' words of anguish, which is the subject for today's study. I'm, I'm asking you to look at the backdrop for Jesus' words of anguish. Verse 45 of our text says, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. According to Jewish calculations for time, that would be from noon to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. In other words, this darkness occurred at a time of the day when the sun usually is blazing its hottest and giving off its most copious amounts of light. But that is when this darkness occurred. You know, we often view 12 o'clock as the epitome of the sun's brightest time of the day, right? We speak of it being high noon. We use that expression, meaning that the sun is at its highest and brightest position in the sky. And from that point on, as the earth continues its rotation, the sun appears to slip more and more towards the horizon and in time appears to be swallowed up by the earth, causing night to descend upon the planet. In reality, we know that what is night for us is really dawn of a new day on the other side of the globe. But what was the reason why this darkness came over all the land? Is Matthew talking here about a thick cloud covering moving in, let's say, and obscuring the light of the sun? Is he referring um, to a severe dust storm as occurs in Palestine at times? Well, these would all be natural explanations for what occurred. We could accept this as a reasonable explanation. I was driving one afternoon in the summer when a thunderstorm rolled in just shortly after the noon hour, and the entire sky literally turned black with hardly a ray of the sun getting through. I'm sure you probably have experienced something similar. I mean, it was so black that all the cars had their lights on, and what is more, the street lights, which are controlled by an electronic relay, they turned on. Now that's pretty black in the middle of the day. For all appearances, people felt they were driving in the city at 9 p.m. at night. But it wasn't 9 p.m. at night. It was early afternoon. And our reason told us that the sun was still shining brightly overhead, even though we couldn't see it. We couldn't benefit from its light. So I say again that we could accept this as being feasible the day Jesus was crucified. But did you know that there are many predictions and declarations in Scripture which link cosmic aberrations with the judgment of God? That is, God does things in the heavens or predicts that he will do things in the heavens in association with his judgment. For example, when addressing Israel's wickedness of oppressing the poor and cheating one another in their business dealings, having crooked scales and 
desecrating the Sabbath with a market mentality. God pledges himself not to overlook any of this. In that day, he writes through the book of Amos, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. Amos 8, verse 9 and 10. Now that's not a cloud coming in obscuring the sun. Isaiah writes of the coming day of the Lord on judgment day. And he says, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it, the stars of heaven, their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Isaiah 13, verse 10 and following. Or in speaking of the coming judgment on Egypt, God says, when I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. I will bring darkness over your land, declares the sovereign Lord. I will trouble many peoples when I bring about your destruction upon the nations. Ezekiel 32 verses 7 through 9. Now the import of this biblical language is that God is doing something supernatural here. Even this last text that we read from Ezekiel, which speaks of a cloud hiding the sun's light, is not descriptive of a cloud in our atmosphere, which we would see on an ordinary phenomena, let's say on a rainy day. No, God says he will cover the sun with the cloud, that is, where the sun is. In its spot in the heavens. And the result will be, naturally, the moon will not give its light. Why? You won't be able to see moonlight because guess what? Moonlight is reflective of the sun. But if the sun is covered, the moon will not give its light. Now back to our text. Verse 45 says... That from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that is from noon to 3 p.m., brightest time of the day, darkness came over all the land. Spurgeon wrote it this way, as only Spurgeon can. It was midnight at midday. Isn't that precious? Just a little short statement. It was midnight at midday. Well, could this have been an eclipse? You see how men try to work the scriptures, come up with a natural explanation. Could this have been an eclipse? Well, we do not know the time of Jesus' birth. That's why some Christians are opposed to a Christmas celebration on December 25th. They say, Ah, we just don't know that that was his birthday. But we know, get it now, we know precisely the time of Jesus' crucifixion 
because of the records of the Roman historians who speak of Pilate's execution of Jesus and the release of Barabbas, and because of the Jewish celebration of Passover, which is always held same month, same time. Competent astronomers report that at, the, at that time in history, the moon was the farthest away from the sun as possible in its revolutions. So no eclipse. Luke tells us what happened. He says it was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining. I'm just reading scripture to you. The Greek term here is the sun failed. It failed. Luke 23, verse 45. How this occurred, Luke does not say. But what he does say indicates that the darkness which fell upon the land that day was supernatural in nature. It cannot be explained away by human experience. Clouds, eclipses, and so on. We remember that in judgment against Egypt, let me read it for you. Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone. That's pretty dark, isn't it? Or leave his place, his house, for three days. I'm still reading scripture. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Wait a minute here. All of Egypt is pitch black. Nobody can even see each other. They don't leave their house. Yet in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were camped, they had light in the places where they lived. Exodus 20, verse 22 and 23. Yeah, that's exactly what the scriptures say. Say, oh, well, that must be a fairy tale. Well, there are some honorable pagan historians. Eusebius the Greek writes of this strange darkness that took place in Egypt in that period of history. So does Dionysus, who was a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt. Corroboration, not that the Bible needs that if we're a believer, but for the world, it's, they need corroboration. So we have in the secular histories accounts of this strange, penetrating darkness. So the supernatural nature of the darkness coincides with the events transpiring on Golgotha outside Jerusalem where God's son, Jesus, was undergoing the wrath of God's judgment for the sins of his people. This says a lot about his cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do we learn from this cry of anguish? Well, number one, I think we learn something of the character of God and something of the condition of sinners in reference to God. Peter tells us what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. That's what was going on this day. Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. That's what was going on that day. Isaiah predicted this. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again, surely he took our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 4. In those hours of darkness on the cross, Jesus was standing in as a substitute criminal for the sins of his people. You and I who believe, not only us, but all who will believe in time as they hear and respond aright to the good news of the gospel. But it wasn't good news for Jesus in those hours. It was bad news. It was a time when God his Father turned his back on his Son, and not only so, but showed his displeasure, his wrath, sparing not his own Son, as the Scripture says, but doing to him everything he will do to unrepentant sinners in the day of judgment. You see, the Bible is clear that while God is one of love, he is also one of inflexible justice and impeccable holiness. This means that he cannot and he will not tolerate sin in his presence. And this is why the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, and it leaves no room for any human being to be exempt from that accusation Romans 5 verse 12, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And this way, death came to all men because all sin. The universal plight on all of humanity. What is this, what is this death of which the Bible speaks? Is it referring only to physical death? Well, it includes that. But it includes spiritual death as well. You say, well, what is, what's spiritual death? Spiritual death is being dead towards God, being dead to the word of God, the commands of God, loving self more than loving God, preferring sin over righteousness. That's spiritual death. And this is true of us all. And this is why God has a controversy with every one of us. This is why the Bible says of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Habakkuk 1 verse 13. Think now of Jesus on the cross as the sin bearer of his people, stained as it were with their guilt. And their wickedness. Looking no better than any liar, 
drunkard, prostitute, thief, murderer, gossip, backbiter, arrogant, God-hating, self-loving, rebellious, immoral person, every that's found on the face of the earth. That's what Jesus looked like in this hour of crucifixion. Well, how, go, how will God treat him? If that's what God sees in him. Will he spare him because he is God's son? Not if the work of the cross is to satisfy the justice and holiness of God. You see, if he spares him, we are lost. We're lost. If he is gentle towards him, we're still in our sins. We have to think through the theology of these things. But, but, if God plunges Jesus into the hell of our just torment, if he blasts him with the wrath of his holiness and lays on him the iniquity of us all, there is assurance that we, by his wounds and his punishment, will be reconciled to God and healed of the sin that results in death and destruction. And so Jesus was experiencing the abandonment of God because God must always abandon sinners in the end. Do you know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth? They're in the forecast for future events because God will not ultimately reside in a sin-stained universe. God himself declares of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven. Here's what he says. Blessed are those who wash their robes, Revelation 7, 14, in the blood of the Lamb, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside, outside the gates now, are the dogs those who practice magic arts. When you see magic arts, think occult. Crystals, Ouija boards, tarot cards, seances, channelers. Outside are those dogs. He goes on. The sexually immoral. Think prostitutes, people living together without being married. Those who are into recreational sex, one-night stands, adulterers, and so on. He goes on. Outside are the murderers. Think of those who kill someone's good reputation with falsehoods. Think of those that are full of hatred and bitterness. Outside are the idolaters. Think of those who live for money and fame and power, material items, those who invent God as they want him to be and not as he reveals himself in the Bible. Oh, and finally, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Think of the liars, the deceivers, the cheats, the slanderers, the backbiters, those who say one thing and mean another. You'll find this in Revelation 22, verse 14 and 15. What I am saying is that for these sins and more, Jesus Christ took the punishment of God. 
darkness was on the land as a symbol of God pouring out his wrath and his justice. But the greatest judgment that Jesus experienced was to be abandoned by God. This is why he asked the question, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22, Jesus answers his own question after asking the question. Here's what he says. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I'm not silent. You are enthroned as the Holy One. There is no answer from heaven. There's no rescue. There's no intervention in Jesus' suffering because God is holy. And Jesus was a sinner by choice and a sinner by substitution on that cross. He was not one on whom God could justly show mercy as he represented sinning people. You may think that that sin is a little thing of no significance because we are all guilty of it. But when we look at the darkness of those three hours and the bitter cry, at the end we learn what God thinks of sin. Your sin and my sin. Secondly, this cry of our Lord shows his unflinching Fidelity to God, he cries out, my God, my God. What I'm saying here is that Jesus still considered the Father his God, and though he would not answer him now, he yet does he call to him and trust in him. During his public ministry, Jesus had this confidence in God, Let me read it for you. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. John 11, verse 42. In Psalm 22, we see Christ in his suffering, and there is a different realization sinking in as he bears the sin of his people. The different realization is, Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. Psalm 22, verse 2. Again, Jesus told the people to whom he ministered, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. John 8, verse 29. But now he asks the question, which confirms a new reality. My God, why have you forsaken me? It was a cry of distress, but not a cry of distrust. Because of Psalm 22, we know a lot of the thoughts which were going through Jesus' mind as he prayed that day at Golgotha. Psalm 22, verse 4 and following, In you our fathers put their trust, he says, 
they trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted. They were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Psalm 22, verses 4 through 8. So there is trust here in God. Even though he questions where God is in his most desperate hour. He goes on in Psalm 22 to explain just how desperate his plight was. He says, do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. He's saying to his father, I'm all alone. If ever I needed your help, Father, it's now. So, but why am I all alone? He goes on. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potter, like a piece of broken pottery, in other words. And my tongue, it sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. What is he saying to God in this? I'm weak. I'm helpless. I'm dying. Where are you? He goes on. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. He's outnumbered, you see, and he's disgraced by his enemies. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to me. Yet the Lord remained afar off. He didn't come. And he didn't help his son. The very taunts of the enemy was that Jesus did not really trust in God. I mean, if he did, they reasoned, then God would have delivered him. (laughs) The fact that God did not deliver him was proof positive to Jesus' accusers that their accusations were well-founded. I mean, how could God not come to the rescue of one who claimed to be his son? How could God sit by and not deliver one of his people who was trusting in him? Now they thought Jesus a liar, a blasphemer, an imposter. And so worthy of anything the authorities dish out to him in punishment. We're going to crucify you among two malefactors, among two criminals. And that is exactly what you deserve. You claim God as your father. Well, he doesn't come to help you. (laughs) What a joke. 
What's the measure of our faith in God? When we pray and God doesn't answer, or miraculously when he says no instead of yes, what happens to our faith? When we're in a bad way and there's no help from God, no rescue, no deliverance, do we still believe in God? Do we still think good thoughts about him? Say, well, we're, we're just human. That's a cop-out. We might be human, but we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, are we not, if we're truly his? Remember Job in all of his agony, Job in all of his pain, Job inflicted by the heavy hand of God who allowed Satan to beat up on him to test his faith. But he passed the test saying of God, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him indeed. This will turn out to be my deliverance. Job 13 verse 15 and following. What was he saying? God, even if you take my life, I know this is going to be for your glory and my good. And I can live with that. Uh, no, God, I can die with that. It is a faulty faith in God which only trusts him during the good times while the sun is shining brightly. Choir is working on a special number that will be singing those similar thoughts. When the sun is shining brightly, I will trust God. You know, anyone can do that. But when the sun fails and the deep darkness of God's displeasure has engulfed us and we sense that God is angry with us and he's opposed to us for our sin, to trust him then, when our only hope is the clear promises of God and the justice of his righteous character, that is true faith and nothing else. Author W. Pink writes it this way. A faith that does not rest on God in adversity as well as in prosperity is not the faith of God's elect. We must have faith to live by. That's true faith. If we would have faith to die by. End quote. Friends, all may be dark in your life. It may appear that God has abandoned you. You pray. Nothing happens. You read the Bible. You are not comforted. Your friends seem more like wild dogs that have surrounded you to close in for the kill. Your friends, your friends. 
But the truth is still, the one who bore our sins also bore our sorrow and pain, that God might be rich in mercy to all who trust in him. Feelings are not a safe guide in this. Listen to me. Feelings are not a safe guide in this. People say, well, I just feel that, that, I just feel that God has abandoned me. I just feel that God is angry with me. Satan would have you whimper in fear and whine in disbelief. But that enemy of our soul was himself defeated in Golgotha that day. Let me read it for you. Hebrews 2. Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him. Who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15. Paul tells us what makes us fear death and what it is that delivers us from that fear. Here's what he says. The sting of death is sin. He's saying, if you were not a sinner before God, you wouldn't be afraid to die. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What's he mean by that? The broken law is what puts bite can I put it that way? Into the accusation that we are sinners. Thou shalt not. But we do it anyway. Broken law. Or the law says, thou shalt. And we don't obey. So there's another bite from the law. He goes on, but thanks be to God, (laughs) he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He paid our indebtedness to the broken law of God by taking the punishment for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'll tell you why. So that you and I as believing people would not be forsaken. Would not be condemned to eternal destruction. He experienced our hell for us. What a Savior. What a Savior we have. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the sacrificial work of Christ. Help us to really see it this morning. There was darkness over that land in Golgotha that day because God was pouring out 
his wrath on the Son of God for the sins of his people. And God was not about to be lenient. He was not about to be gentle. He was not about to be lax. No, he gave Jesus the full blunted fury of the broken law of God. The judgment required. The soul that sins must die. And all that that means. We thank you, dear Father, for sending your Son. And dear Son, we thank you for willingly coming to be the sin bearer for us. Now, if there's some here this morning, they've never cast their heart cares upon you. They've never sought your forgiveness for sin. They've never really looked at their sin as being so black and so devastating, so crippling, so condemning. May this be the day you show them that. And then, Lord, don't leave them there in their sin, but show them the glory of the crucified Savior. We ask this firstly for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is from the Trinity, 257 in Trinity. Let's stand together as we sing 257 in Trinity.
sometimes a song in the minor key helps, helps us understand the sorrow of that day. Well, tonight, <clears throat> 6 o'clock, we will meet downstairs for our <clears throat> study in the Gospel of John. And believe it or not, we're still in a section in John's Gospel which deals with Jesus' arrest and trial before Pilate and the things that led up to crucifixion. So in the providence of God, these studies that I'm doing here on Sunday morning dovetail with the studies we're doing on Sunday night. So we'll see you tonight at 6. Thank you. We're dismissed. Mm -hmm.